Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, and welcome back to another episode of the Health in Harlem podcast, now streaming on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and soon on Google Play. And ladies and gentlemen, the very devices that you are using to stream these services are kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, We're talking about wearables and how they can affect your health and wellness. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Titus who is the professor and chair of biomedical engineering at the University of Buffalo at the State University of New York. And we have our lovely crew. My name is Giorgio Malouf. I'm Reed. And I'm Anastasia. And Dr. Titus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. So today uh, we wanted to talk about some of the wearable technology that has exploded onto the scene. Uh, in the form of watches, pedometers, glasses, etc. And they have been instrumental in promoting health and fitness. Insulin pumps, pacemakers, implantable defibrillators have all prolonged and improved the quality of life of many people with chronic diseases. And so I think they deserve a slot on this week's episode. So running after all those villains... I wonder how many steps Dick Tracy logged onto his smartwatch or how about the dearth of steps probably recorded by Captain Kirk chilling on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. Wearable technology has exploded onto the scene. And according to Business Insider, more than 80% of Americans are willing to wear fitness technology. Consumer use of wearable health technology increased from 9% in 2014 to 33% in 2018. That's a rise from one in 10 to approximately one in three of uh, consumers being interested in this kind of technology. Absolutely, yeah. Um, So people all over the place are finding uh, various benefits of wearable technologies. Um, Wearable technologies can provide up to 20% increases in workout efficiency. and it can possibly help diagnose and treat various diseases. Um, also, the data generated by these can uh, provide doctors with uh, up to 15 hours a week being saved just by looking at the data of all their patients. Um, so a survey conducted in 2018 uh, found that nearly 75% of consumers viewed wearables as beneficial in understanding their health status. So. Welcome to this episode on Health in Harlem, where we're going to discuss uh, various benefits and cons and research behind future wearables. 
Over to you, Giorgio. So I, I guess the first question that we have for you, Dr. Titus, is what are wearables? Well, first, uh, again, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and about this topic, and um, and it's a topic I um, I have fun with, so it's 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 easy to talk about. So, um, so what are wearables? Uh, broadest sense when we think about wearables is a it's a technology that is most likely going to have some electronics. It's going to have some sensors. Um, these are going to be worn on or close to the body. They even can be in the body itself in some cases. Um, and what types of devices? Well, as you mentioned previously, uh, things like the, the wrist-based devices, like the watches. Um, uh, there's also smart eyeglasses. There are also smart rings that, that have been being developed. Um, smart shoes, smart clothing, meaning uh, textiles that are then um, made into clothes that people wear with sensors and electronics in them, as well as um, even now smart tattoos that, that are, people are developing. And then, of course, implantable devices of various sorts, um, as you mentioned, um, for the implantable defibrillators and, um, you know, the the very scary oh, chip that's implanted under your skin to track you. Which is not <laughs> really, but I mean, we have our cell phones. I, I think that's, uh, that's exactly. enough of an information breach. <laughs> that's right. I think I think so, uh, you've got cell phones, and so why do you need that chip under your skin to track you when you're already tracking yourself? Exactly, and uploading our consciousness pretty much uh, onto the internet. Well, uh, Doctor Tyson, when you said smart tattoos. What exactly did you mean? Is this a literal tattoo that is a medical device or is this is this not a medical application? So so there's a so where what people are working on for smart tattoos, I would say it's not yet a medical device. Um, I'm not aware of anything that's being approved yet. It's still pretty early on. The development right now is is working on um, coming up with the right types of inks to use. So that you, when it's um, when you're when the tattoo goes on, um, it the ink itself is can be conductive. Um, the the ink may have also the properties that it may, for example, change color if it senses certain um, certain chemicals. So the idea is that the tattoo itself may be an electronic device or maybe purely a chemical device that it indicates. Um, you know, maybe that your temperature has gone up too high and then it changes from blue to red or something like that. Um, so the, the it's they're generally going to be much simpler in terms of what they do. But it's but it's an area that people are that people are looking into because of, um, you know, the uh, the possibilities and the simplicity of it, really. And it's certainly in terms of one of the issues with all kinds of wearables is. Did you remember to put it on? Did you remember to bring it with you? And how much does it weigh? And is it out of power, et cetera? So if you can get away from that, then using one of these types of um, one of these types of tattoos, maybe it's a good good way to go. So how did you get into all of this wearable research and the entire field? Uh, and when you did get into the field, what did the field look like? I imagine it, if, if this is how much growth has happened in the past couple of years, I can't imagine uh, from the beginning of your career to now. Right. So I, I would say that my career, um, so my, my research started in more in, the, um, in artificial vision um, a few years ago, really pre most um, modern wearables for sure. But um, so artificial vision, looking at developing and designing and making computer chips that would mimic how uh, animals see. So when I started, it was, there were, I had two, two possibilities. Do I want to develop these kinds of smart chips that can see similar to how an animal might see for robotic vision or for human implantable vision? And so it was kind of a debate that went on. And um, over time, that activity kind of morphed into uh, doing a different type of research, which was more biochemical sensing. So that then led to doing different types of sensors away from vision, some similar, some similarities, but some different. So I started doing some different research uh, related to biochemical sensing. And then that morphed into as, the, as kind of the years went by, turned into, okay, well, 
we're always looking at trying to make these sensors smaller and better and less power, which means they become wearables. So the concept of doing sensing, which is really what my background is, and how do you turn that into a wearable is just because of the um, uh, because of the way that way the technology has grown, and you're trying to trying to um, come up with new ways of of doing the sensing, especially when you're talking about sensing on the body or in the body. And what kind of things are you usually sensing? So for so in my research, um, <clears throat> we're doing um, so we've been working on a particular type of sensor such um, that measures um, hydrogen ions, um, and that can then be converted to do doing sensing of various types. Um, we've done <clears throat> doing sensing where we're looking at sensing um, for looking at infection infection sensing in the body, um, and we've done work where we've um, been developing and have developed uh, con- what we call contactless sensors, um, which are not really contactless sensors, actually, They're really, which is kind of a misnomer. <laughs> but, but basically what it is is a sensor that is con- in contact, but it, it could have a piece of clothing between your skin and the sensor and still function, although it becomes more difficult. But that's, the goal is to be able to do sensing of electrical signals on the skin but you don't have to use necessarily like the gel that you might find a lot of times if you've ever put on a sticky sensor to, to do an EKG or, or a heart test or something. There's gel that goes on there, and that gel is, is important to improve the, the signal um, uh, pickup. <clears throat> but it's, you know, to do that, to wear that every day all the time. Let's say you had to put on your smartwatch and you have to put that gel on your wrist every day. At some point, you're going to probably stop wearing that watch, right? So the contactless sensor, the idea is that you don't need to have, you do other things, so you don't need the gel. So so those are the different areas of, of research that I'm, I'm working on. That's fascinating. And, and what kind of wearables do you use personally, out of curiosity? Oh, that's a good question. I have on my, um, I don't, I have on a particular brand of smartwatch. <laughs> Not sure if <laughs> brand names have a particular oh, yeah, we, particular smartwatch. I haven't. I, I see this isn't your first uh, appearance on the on the air. <laughs> okay, so you have a particular brand on. Okay, and uh, do you use that for health tracking, or is it uh, primarily for other uh, uses? And then it just happens to also do it. Yeah, that's a you know that's a great question, and I think um, it's something that I keep thinking about myself with it because why did I buy this particular brand of, of watch, let's say <clears throat> to begin with. And it's because partly is that I'm kind of a gadget person. So I you know, I wanted something to fiddle with. Um, you know, I, during different times I would go to the gym, no, no longer, but I'd go to the gym and, you know, you know, <laughs> walk, et cetera, et cetera. But even when I went to the gym, when I first started wearing this, it was like, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't even really care. But then it really did get into um, the case where I'm like, yeah, and I'm, I'm going for a walk with the dog, you know, my dog Olive, and we're go for a walk every day. And so now every day I walk out the door and I click the thing and I say, start counting my steps. I wanted to do that. So it's gotten into a habit where it's something I do and I want to, you know, keep that going. Am I, really concerned about, oh, how many steps did I take today? Some people really, really, really get into that. That for me, that's not, that wasn't the case. It was much more, um, you know, is it, am I getting enough exercise? And um, especially right now, I spend so many days, um, so many hours of a day in front of Zoom or, you know, Zooming with uh, meetings and so forth where I need to get up, you need to move around. You can't just be sitting all the time. And so the, so the device has really helped me make sure that I'm not just sitting. And that's, um, so it's been, um, it's been very good in that sense. Um, and the newer versions now of different types of devices can also, they can also do some EKG measurements, right? Um, and that's an interesting component um, for me, not necessarily super important, but for some people it could be very important. So, why do I have it? I have it because it was a gadget, but then it's also gotten to become part of my routine and something that, um, you know, it's, it's fun to do. Some people also get more into the kind of the social side of it where they want to, they have competitions with people and they use their device to track, which is great if that keeps them motivated and going, because I think the one of the biggest, um, what the research has shown is 
stay mobile, just, you know, make sure you keep walking as, especially as you age. So not that I'm you see the that. same hold true. Oh no, you're, you're very young. I mean, not just in, uh, in appearance, but also in the number of activities you're doing brain is still extremely sharp. I mean, uh, and that's a testament to all of the uh, things you're doing to stay healthy. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you bring up the, uh, the way that, technology inadvertently helped you to become more active because I think that's the one of the biggest uh, kind of uh, arguments against technology and promoting its uh, development because I think earlier on in its development, it was very stationary. And um, as people like yourself uh, continue to help move the field along, we're seeing that it's actually doing the opposite, that people... Now who were stuck gaming, sitting down, now they are in virtual reality, right. running around on thread, on treadmills just to play games uh, and inadvertently getting the physical activity that they would want in a recreational manner. Um, and like you said, a lot of uh, the ability to get that instant feedback of seeing the numbers, closing out your rings. Uh, Dr. Selby actually... Uh, always tells us about how if, if he closed out his rings for the day or not. And uh, we were just discussing how uh, during COVID, when he was staying with a doctor, um, basically they were staying away from their family members um, while they were treating patients. Uh, they were getting into basically competitions, like you said, uh, trying to stay as active as possible. And whenever someone would, would exercise, it would trigger the other to want to go and, and get their workout in before the end of the night. So it could definitely be something that promotes it. Um, and I think I'm interested to see how these uh, applications for the technology continue to develop. Um, and we'll get back to that after the break. I, I want to take give you guys some time to, to marinate with all of this information. And when we get back, if I could please have uh, Dr. Titus summarize where this field is going in terms of uh, what are the different forms of wearables and categorizing them more generally. Ladies and gentlemen, don't touch the dial. You're listening to Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM. And this is the podcast, which is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and soon on Google Play. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Health in Harlem here on the Health in Harlem podcast available at Podbean, Apple, Spotify, and soon Google. Uh, we will also be streaming our episodes on WHCR 90.3 FM every Thursday night from 7 to 8 at our regular program timing. Uh, today, we're talking about wearables, health and wellness and how wearable technology or implantable technology can help to improve your health and wellness and will likely have a permanent spot in the medical field as we move forward in time. And we have a very special guest, one of the pioneers from the field, Dr. Titus, with us today. And Dr. Titus was just telling us a little bit about his research over the break. Um, and we wanted to welcome you back and ask you to kind of uh, summarize what, what are the type of wearables uh, broadly? What are the categories of wearables and what they're trying to achieve? Sure. So, um, so I think we can talk about three broad um, subgroups of wearables. Um, one, 
being probably what most most people are, are are aware of and are most familiar with, which are what I'd call healthy lifestyle tracking wearables. And so those types of wearables, you know, as you know, you're, it's like a watch or um, some other type of device that you have on your, you might wear on your wrist, most likely, um, where it's tracking your motion, it's tracking your activity, it's, it's tracking your steps, and maybe helping coach you to keep going, to do more. Um, maybe it's keeping track of your, you know, your calories, um, which that measure is probably not super useful in a in a real sense, but um, but really the overall um, activity that it's trying to measure, and then it's in those healthy lifestyle tracking devices are have broadened um, over time as they become they've been some there's been more features added as we've seen where it can measure your heart rate and tell you now what your heart rate is, and then it can also uh, newer versions are also getting into things like measuring. Um, measuring EKG. And then there are some also that are getting into measuring um, SpO2 or um, oxygen concentrations in the blood. Um, so the, those are healthy lifestyle tracking. And then there's another a second type of uh, subcategory, which I'd say are, is called um, chronic uh, condition monitoring or alerts. So these type of devices, these type of wearables, um, they would be more the type that'd be worn by a patient or someone who's been diagnosed with a condition or that may have a particular condition. Um, so potentially they have maybe a person who has seizures or maybe someone who's, um, it seems like they're having, um, heart conditions. So they would be, um, they would be given a type of device to wear to track that during real time to try to collect any sort of data that you might be able to get during a regular day's activities rather than go into the physician's office, sit there for 10 minutes, go into the lab or go into some other place and collect data while you're there and hope that you're able to catch a particular event that um, is important or relevant um, during that time period. And um, so the, so these wearables are able to do obviously more uh, longer tracking and then you collect that data and, and hopefully that's able um, enables people to make diagnoses or on the other side, it's an alert system where once something is detected and it can sound an alert and it can um, trigger a response either from for the person or from a, maybe a healthcare provider or an emergency responder. So that would be the second type. The third type um, is more of a research uh, area type of wearable where it's um, where you think about clinical trials, either for the device itself or for um, maybe say drugs or so forth. So clinical trials, um, if you're developing a new drug or some other sort of um, uh, um, health uh, improvement tool, um, the, the wearable devices uh, would be um, used to help collect data on a, a person's um, responses um, as opposed to having to fill out a particular form, a wearable may be able to do to collect this data by itself. So those are the three kind of broad areas that I would say um, uh, we could put wearables in from a, from a, a stand, you know, a standard set. So what, what kind of categories do you find yourself working most with and most interested in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so where I'm most working in, I think, so, so one sense I'd say it's more toward, um, the side of, uh, probably more the, um, chronic condition monitoring, in one area, but at the same time, some of the other research is in components or sensing that whose, whose applications may be expand into a lot of different areas. So it may be in, I would say probably more into the category, like I said, one, the healthy lifestyle tracking and in the chronic condition monitoring, some of the fundamental sensor work could go in either of those two directions. Um, the other work that I'm doing, um, uh, that I'm working on, which is related to, um, uh, looking at responding, it's trying to sense and respond to orthopedic implant infections, that that one is, is more probably, obviously more of a, a chronic condition monitoring or, uh, yeah, chronic condition monitoring. Yeah, that's what I would put that as. Yep. So when we're talking about sensing, uh, it seems like a lot of the devices that are currently on the market are using conduction of that electricity to kind of be able to get these readings. 
or using, um, I know with the pulse oximeter, you would be using uh, different types of electromagnetic radiation, basically using lighting to be able to uh, figure out the concentrations of things. We have some chemical sensing. Um, what other principles from basic sciences were incorporated into the engineering of this? Because you're basically creating new types of inputs. Uh, I'm assuming that the body can't perceive, or am I wrong in that uh, thinking that way? Um, so it depends on the it depends on the um, what the goal of the wearable is. So most most wearables today are using, as you said, they're using they're using light. Um, that's pretty common. Um, they're using motion. That's the other piece, and then they may be using. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're measuring the, they're using, they're using a capacitive type sensor or other type of a sensor where they're actually measuring the electrical signal from the, from the body. So from the skin, if it's on the surface. So those are the stand, those are pretty standard in terms of the methods used for detecting, um, signals from the body, um, other types of, and so then the, the, the sensor itself tries to pull this information. It tries to look at the, it tries to convert the signal from the body that the body is producing and convert it into mostly what we try to do is we can convert it into an electrical signal because that's what we use to store it. If we're putting it in memory or we're going to display it, if you want to look at the numbers or send, transmit it off someplace, if you're trying to send it someplace else. So the sensor is part of the, is really the device that says, okay, take the physiological condition response and turn it into the electrical component and how you do that. Conver- so it's almost like, yeah. How you do that conversion is, is really whether you might use light, you might, might be using light to, to change in light intensity, or you might use the motion or you might use, um, you know, just measuring the, ele- the electrical signal itself. So sensing is basically like a reverse tr- signal transduction. So instead of taking one type of energy, converting it into action potentials, it's almost like, or actually, it's it is a, another signal transduction, then, right? Exactly. Yep. You're, you're converting. So, so same. Yeah. Yep. It's it's just that you know. So when I a lot of times when I uh, talk about this subject in class, I say that you know we could we could cr- we could create um, we we can create a sensor that say is sensing your pulse, right? And so. And we and and we have them right, but you, but if you you could create a sensor that that's sensing your pulse, and you wear on your skin and your wrist or wherever, and you what do we normally do with that? Is we normally convert it to electrical signal that the pulse measurement that we're getting, which is an optical signal that we're using usually, that we then convert to electrical signal. But we don't have to convert it to an electrical signal. We could have converted it into a sound, or we couldn't, or we could have it converted into a chemical signal that could you know so it. You know, every time it measures your pulse, it, you know, it, it, um, it, it plays a tune, which is interesting, but is that particularly useful for you? If you were jogging and this, the sound would get higher pitched to indicate your pulse rate is going up, yeah, it might be useful. Hmm. Or maybe it's going to be super distracting because you're trying to listen to music while you're doing this or listen to a fun podcast as you're working out. So you might want, might not want that kind of that beep, 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 beep sound of your pulse, but if you're lying in a in a uh, you know in a hospital bed that sound may be useful for somebody else to to know what's going on but there but so the sensing is the process of converting and we generally convert it to electrical signal because we know what to do with those signals and we we have we basically what we're trying to do is right we're trying to we're trying to store that data we're trying to process that data we're trying to understand that data we're trying to you know use that data for other things so electrical is what makes sense what factors um do you think about in terms of making sure that the signal actually passes on all the information that it's getting? Um, and how do you go about mitigating the noise that might come up in that situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, f- so for any sensor, any no matter what it's sensing, and if it's in a wearable or, or no matter what, the, the, there are many issues um, that you try to mitigate to make sure that what you're sensing is is good. Um, that the signal that you're getting is representative of what you're actually sensing. So, you know, really depends on what you're trying to sense. So in general, we, um, so we have, 
we have noise and noise is like, you know, the dog barking in the background when you're on your Zoom call, or it's also the fact that my, um, my microphone hums because of the internal electronics itself. So there's different types of noise that are involved and you're always trying to deal with those. For biological signals that you're trying to measure from the body, um, big ones, if you're trying to measure EKG, for example, or, or even e, um, um, uh, EEG uh, from the brain, electrical lights, electrical power around you is a big noise source and that's a problem. So you're trying to... you tinfoil hat yourself by putting aluminum foil over your sensors to try to block that shield you from those things in a very simple way. Um, so there's a lot of design issues that go into like the size and the shape of the, of your sensors. And then there's other signal processing techniques that you can use a lot of math manipulation to try to, to eliminate um, noise or, or unwanted signals. And you also have to understand what the physiology is as you're trying to detect um, uh, signals from the body. Um, you have to understand like what, if you're trying to uh, measure pulse rate using an optical signal, um, like in a, in a pulse oximeter, you have to understand what wavelengths absorb, what don't absorb, because you can, if you just use any old light, it's not going to work very well and you're obviously going to get a worse signal. So there's, there's lots of different um, pieces to that. And then um and then it's it gets to more and more as we get more and more data, you have to then start to say, okay, well, how do we understand all of these pieces of data together? Because a lot of time now sensors, I don't just measure my pulse using the optical sensor, but I also may use a, um, a, another sensor to, that measures motion. And I may want to use that motion information to help me better understand my pulse information because the motion of my arm is not important to my pulse What's important to my pulse is my pulse, but the emotion in the arm may be something I need to get rid of if I'm trying to measure my pulse. So a lot of times it now means you start bringing more sensors together to get information that you're trying to get. Which is so Dr. Titus. Uh... No, sorry. It just uh, say is it's important in a wearable. Um, the issue there is that you, you, you generally are dealing with limited space. So you have other constraints that may be, you know, you know, th- just like, you know, in your smartphone, you have constraints that you may not, may not have if you have a, desktop gaming computer, um, you've got different constraints. And so that may limit um, what you're able to really sense and how well you can sense it. So I had a question about this whole kind of pipeline. Um, So it seems like most of these devices are taking an external or internal stimulus or some kind of signal, being able to sense that signal, process it from what I'm understanding from you. So now they're, they're using some kind of computation Yep. To, to take that information and make sense of it. And then it's transmitting it somehow, either through a wired or wireless connection. Yep. And I'm not too sure if it's going to a cloud or if it's all with, with just like devices uh, that you, you know, personal devices. And then I'm, the next question is, are we at the stage where we've essentially recreated a nervous system and reflex where there's an effector too? Is there something that is done with the information where an effect is down is now uh, made possible, right? So that's a so that's a great um, it's a great analogy. Um, are we creating an artificial distributed neural sensing system where our sensors are, you know, what is what is the beam that's sensing? If 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 you have your wear, wearable sensor on your wrist and I have mine, and Anastasia has hers and Reed has his, we are all are we now just the just the uh, fingertips on some sort of larger, um, larger being that's collecting this data and doing something with it. And who is that? And what company is it or what, whatever um, you could ask that question, but the, yes, it's, it's a, it's, that's, that's really what's going on. And then, so what is the effect? What's happening with this information that we're, that we're producing? Is it that if it's just staying on my wrist, it may be that I'm walking more or it may be that, you know, I need to, you know, do yoga to relax and try to lower my heart rate. Or is it that yeah. I've detected, you know, I'm saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm not feeling very well. My pulse rate is high. I've been kind of lethargic. And so, you know, that data is being transmitted and you are 
sending the same thing. And, you know, we just met yesterday and had lunch together. And now all of a sudden, is it, are we starting to look at, okay, well, we're tracking COVID using this mechanism. So the sensed ent- entity is the population as a whole, um, or is it, um, you know, so then, so what is the effect then? Well, the effect is then maybe we need to start, I need to quarantine, you need to quarantine, we need to get tested, or or I need to go see the doctor, or or whatever. So, um, the response to all of this is depends on really where the data goes and what we're doing with it. So, so, so my question was kind of um, also asking, let's say in the application that or the analogy rather that you brought up of someone is jogging with their heart rate uh, frequency changes, perhaps instead of hearing the the frequency of a tune change. That instead, it was almost like a feedback loop, and you got you your phone knew to play relaxing music because your uh, it was picking up from your EEG and your ECG and your heart rate that you were under some kind of distress and you know or what it picked up as distress. So it decided it's time for us to try and return back to this homeostasis set point. And uh, we're going to use these kind of things automatically. Right. Uh, I'm wondering if that's where you see it, kind of like with the insulin pumps, for instance. Right. right. Um, is is that is that where we're going, or do you think there will always be a human middleman? Will there always be a human in the loop? Um, or or middle woman? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. Because my wife, who is a who is an uh, human factors person. Um, will answer would be the better person to answer this question because this is her area exactly and human in the loop is always essential so um that is my answer and i will i will stick to it so um but but the the concept of having this kind of automatic feedback system in and for something like this it is a, it is a very interesting and likely where people are trying to bring things but as i think we probably recognize that in order for this system to know how to use this data to produce the feedback it has to be someone has to train it someone has to teach it to be able to do it and so therefore when my heartbeat starts going too high what is it going to do for me is it going to start to um you know play one type of music when i'm like all of a sudden my heart rate goes even really higher um, because that's not the music I like at all. It's not relaxing to me. It drives me crazy. So it's going to, will it learn that? Or will it say, well, your heart rate's going even higher. I better play it even louder. And so it ends up, you know, so, or is, is it that it's been trained on me, but it's not been trained on, on you. So then it doesn't even know what you like or even how it's supposed to respond to you. So, you know, so that gets in. So, so the no human in the loop all of a sudden means that we're relying on somebody else to do this creation of this system. And how well does it work? And how many how many different types of people has it you have they used to try to train it so that it knows how many what different types of people like and or how that should respond? You know, all very interesting questions to to ponder over the break, ladies and gentlemen. Don't touch the dial. Keep it tuned on WHCR 90.3 FM. Or if you're on the podcast, don't pause us. We're coming right back after this short intermission. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Health in Harlem, and we have Dr. Titus, our special guest for the evening. 
and uh, we're just talking about wearables. We just got a full explanation um, about how wearables are able to do the sensing that they do from an engineering and scientific principle uh, standpoint, basically what guided their designs and how it kind of relates to the human body. And now I'm wondering, Dr. Tice, if you could tell us a little bit more about the applications of this biomedical engineering that you've specifically used in your projects, uh, what you've worked on, and uh, along the process, if you could let us know what you've learned from recreating uh, this human machinery or integrating with human machinery, what you've learned about the human body, uh, we'd love to hear about it. So, um, so I guess what I'll talk about a little bit is um, one project I'm working on with uh, another faculty member um, in the department who's really leading the effort. So he's so what we've been working on together and um, is this concept of trying to uh, mitigate both sense and mitigate um, infections in uh, in in orthopedic implants. So so that's it is a wearable and a wearable hopefully that nobody would ever need to wear. Um, which is which is what makes it interesting is that you're you're creating something that you'd never want to use, but um, but that's perfectly fine. Um, so the um, but it's still very early on. It's still um, lab based research. It's still um, uh, animal based research. So so the idea is that um, in an, in orthopedic implants, um, there are cases where there are infections. So if you get an infection in orthoped- on an orthopedic implant when it's put in, then um, you generally need antibiotics to treat it, as you might with any infection. Um, but if the antibiotics don't uh, work or, um, or the infection is too bad, then the only result is that you have to replace the, the implant. So you remove it. So you need to take it out and put another one in, which is um, both costly and more so painful and uncomfortable and, and, and something which nobody wants to go through. So, um, so one of the, one of the, how often does that happen? So it's uh, the numbers are anywhere in the, in the sub, probably in, in maybe five to 10% of the cases It's probably probably I think closer to 5%, but it's difficult to say or in terms of, and that's, that's a number of infections. That's not the number of um, replacements that are necessary. I don't know if I have a number of replacements that, that I off the top of my head, I don't know if I know that number, but um, in terms of infections can happen in the five to 10% of the cases or so. So then what do you, so what can you do? So one of the, um, so some previous research has shown that you can apply a stimulation of an electrical stimulation to the to the implant, and that is, and if done correctly, you can um, kill help kill the infection. Um, so, what we've been working on is an implantable device to be able to do that. So that implantable device um, it applies a voltage to the electrode in the body, and that electrode is the implant itself. Um, and it's battery powered. It's a smart device. It can communicate with Bluetooth to be able to be controlled. So the whole goal is to try to um, try to um, at this point, what we're trying to do is prove that this device works in it in, in what are the conditions it works under. And then you can also expand that to try to do um, try to do sensing as well, um, which is where some of the project is going is to try to be able to do some more sensing rather than just responding. So the idea is that. Um, with the device, the implantable device, you can um, you can use it, say, to start with. So let's say you you were to implant your your uh, your device in the body, your orthopedic device, I mean your artificial hip or shoulder or joint or whatever. That goes in, and you and you treat it with this other implantable device automatically. You just turn it on and use it because you want to make sure you can prevent the infection. So there's no there's no waiting um, and. In case, okay, so so that's one approach, and then the other approach is that you could have something where you'd implant it for a while, or you'd use it for a while, and then you'd, if you needed to, if you sensed something was wrong, then you could you could turn it on and use it. So, um, so then that's so that's what the so the one area of research that we're working on is that device and, and trying to determine how well it works and what are the conditions it works under, and that involves a lot of pieces because again, it, for what we're doing, it has to be very small has to be battery powered, it's wireless. So how do you solve all the problems that are associated with, with a wearable, but wearable that also has to be implanted, which is, which is even more difficult. And, and so do you think that most implants will kind of shift from having special coatings to prevent 
infections to now having more of these electrical uh, the ability to electrically um, exterminate any any kind of uh, infection before it, it uh, is able to to spread. Um, I pr- probably not because the I think because of the concern for infections, our the goal will be to do as much as possible to prevent it. So if it means it means coatings, it means um, antibiotics, and it means if it eventually means the stimulation as well. I think all of those things would be done. I think that unless you were able to get to a point where you showed that 100% of the cases or some extreme number, the stimulation by itself does the trick, then you wouldn't do anything else. I think that would be great because you wouldn't need antibiotics. But but until you get to the case, to the situation where you're sure of that, I don't think that you're going, people are going uh, to say, okay, we're just going to do a couple and hope. So, and so, you mentioned that you wanted uh, to start to sense mm-hmm. um, the infections and detect these infections uh, and not just be able to respond to them. Right. Um, is that something that you're actively researching or is that something that you're kind of hoping the field will take uh, that direction? And So that's something that's an aspect of where we are just getting into that that work right now. So that's, it's something that's ongoing, uh, kind of early stages, um, of the research. And that's kind of where we're, where we're headed. So it's, it's, it's an important piece, but it's, 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 a a piece that we don't have a lot of data on yet, but that's where things are going. So you mentioned though, that you were using other types of sensing to be able to detect, uh, the presence of, let's say a virus, uh, which is, very uh, on topic right now, uh, given that we're dealing with a virus that has become a pandemic. And we're struggling to figure out how to test for the presence of this virus. We're, uh, and we're basically in a position where most of the time we have to result, um, we have to kind of instead look for an immune response rather than look for the presence of the actual pathogen. Mm-hmm. And then once we did develop let's say antigen testing, um, the reliability isn't always where we'd hope uh, or the cost might not justify the benefits of knowing uh, compared to, you know, having the same treatment plan regardless. So I'm just wondering what, where, how actually, how can we detect uh, things that are biological or uh, viral, which I don't even know how to classify virus, uh, other than having some of the pieces of, uh, of of a living thing and half alien is the way I like to think about it. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So, so, so one of the, um, so one of our projects that we've worked on in the past and it was um, something called an ion sensitive device. And the long name is ion sensitive field effect transistor. Um, type of sensor. And what are all those things? Ion sensitive means it's sensitive to ions. And in the case that we're talking about, it's hydrogen ions. Field effect transistor is a is the fundamental building block of every computer device, every electronic device that we have is, is made up of something called um, a field effect transistor. So using integrated technology to be able to make these sensors um, and these sensors that are responding to ions, um, in other words, pH change is what this really is. So you can make these very small, uh, you can make these sensors very small, or you can make lots and lots and lots and lots of these sensors in a small area or a slightly bigger area, you can make lots and lots and lots of these sensors. So, um, so the work that we had done previously was to try to make these sensors more um, resilient to different conditions and more um, noise resistant, et cetera, um, as we kind of talked about a little bit earlier, I think um, that you want to try to eliminate noise problems. So the so these so that was some of the work that we had done in the past, and then now what we've seen and other people, other researchers are also are also um, working on as well is the is using these type of sensors to be able to detect the presence of viral RNA. Um, 
So that's so, which is obviously related to the COVID situation. So what in what we're just starting on is trying to move um, move our sensor and try to um, work with people to be able to develop the sensor to move in that direction of being able to detect different types of RNA. And it's a it's a relatively so the sensor itself. What makes these sensors these ion sensitive field effect transistors short? The short term is ISFET. Um, because it's too long to say ion-sensitive field effect transistor over and over and over again. But uh, what makes them good or why people like them is because you can manufacture them, you can fabricate them using the same technologies you're using to manufacture or fabricate all the computer chips we use. So that technology, you know, it's out there. I mean, it's not that it's super cheap just to make a computer chip, but you can make different integrated circuits. These computer chips, you can make some very inexpensively, standard ones, they cost, you know, dimes. So, so the idea is you can make these sensors relatively inexpensively. And they're, since they're integrated circuits also, that means you can connect them to other electronics very easily. So now you're talking about how do you start to mesh all of these, pull all these things, these different pieces of sensing and, and signal processing and computation and communication. You're trying to bring them all together, smaller and smaller and smaller, so that you can turn them into a wearable. That's ultimately where you try to go with it. So for these, so that's what these um, these devices why they're why they're promising is because they can be made small. It's still again, it still stages off um, the work that that's going on is using still using a nasal swab to try to get the uh, to try to get the um, to get the sample. That's what the um, that a group in London is working on, and they've they've had some good results um, using these types of devices. And um, and it's. Uh, it's the the idea is that you're able to when the binding occurs on these on these chips when you're um, then you're able to detect changes in pH because uh, because the hydrogen ions that are released when these bindings occur. So you need to do some special processing. It's not just simply okay, boom, put it down and yeah, we got everything works great. Obviously, nothing works great. Most everything doesn't work as as kind of we talked about I think before the show. Most things don't work the first time or even the second time. Um, and then maybe the third time it finally works. But so, so that's one of the other pieces that we're working on is, is these, these sensor chips that can, um, hopefully be used to help, um, for detecting viruses, which we'd like to have no more of in the future, but I can pretty sure that we will see more of these in the future. If history tells us anything, it, it does. And do you think that this is something that would, uh, detect, just the presence so it's like a binary on or off or would it also give you resolution to tell you this is how many copies of the virus we have so that you could tell how severe the infection or viral load is i think to start with it's pretty much just the detection whether it's it's there i don't know that there is an ability yet to determine the the quantity i think that that would be that would certainly be a goal but i'm not sure we're there yet okay and one last uh project that i want to touch on that we we kind of had bits and pieces of this but if you could tell us a little bit about the artificial vision project that you were working on i'd love to to hear a little bit more about what 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 was uh, behind the brain um right. of this operation right so the um so the kind of my the work that i started on research was related to um artificial vision and trying to mimic biological visual systems on a chip so Trying to, and in particular, trying to mimic the functionality of the retina, which is a part of the eye that is uh, um, that senses the light, converts the light to electrical signals, and um, sends that off to the brain. So, um, so the idea is that um, pre, you know, right now today we have, and anybody listening, probably if you're listening podcast on your uh, on your phone or listening to the show on your phone. Um, you've got a camera in that most likely. So pre those cameras, we were working on these, uh, this type of uh, artificial vision using sensors that convert light to electrical signals, but doing the processing that's mimicking how different types of animals process the visual signals. So, uh, so it's not just a taking of a picture like a camera does, but it's actually doing a lot of processing again on the computer chip itself, not not sending it off to computer to you know Photoshop it. It's being done on the chip, on the sensor itself. And the goal is that it's trying to mimic how our visual systems work because obviously our eyes do a pretty good job of seeing overall, even though I have to wear glasses or contacts, but whatever. <laughs> um, 
but in general, our, we do see pretty well as um, um, as one of our senses. So, so the idea was that can we mimic the the processing of animals on on a chip with a with the goal of either moving this to an implantable type of a device or moving it to more of a robotic vision kind of device um, uh, using the properties of okay, we understand or we have a general understanding of how the how our retina works the biology behind it the sensors the uh the, the different types of cells whether it's horizontal cells and amacrine cells etc and how do you how do these interconnect and how do you make transistor circuits that do, do the same thing using light input on these sensors and convert it to signals that are mimicking what our, our what our retina does so that was some of the some of the work um, that we've that we've done in the past, looking at different aspects of things. And from um, in one interesting example was the uh, octopus retina and trying to mimic polarization or the sensitivity of polarized light, which um, is not something that that most animals can detect. Certainly, humans are not sensitive to polarized light without a polarizer, right? Polarized light meaning if anyone has certain types of sunglasses, right? If you if you wear polarized uh, sunglasses. Um, you turn your head and sometimes you can stuff will disappear or reappear because your LCD screens, if you have an LCD screen, they're based on polarized light. So you can make the numbers go away if you use wear polarized sunglasses and look at one of those screens. Um, and that's what octopuses are able to do is determine is to sense those differences. So. So when you're talking about image processing, just one question about this. Um are you kind of describing the difference between using a modern day digital camera or using a, ca a digital camera from 10 years ago that would probably not have uh, as efficient of an image processor? Or are we talking about a different kind of analogy? Like you literally have more colors and different types of sensing um, that you would, you would be able to overlay, let's say. Right. So when I talk about the image processing, it's more of um, it's more of a it's it's more that has to do with that you are converting. So the light that comes in and hits the sensors, a, a simple camera and now cameras today, digital cameras do a lot more of the processing, but that's it's all pretty much all software based. So it's doing things because it knows what to do because we've created these algorithms, but for the, what I was discussing was more that the circuitry itself is hardwired similar to how the, the retina is hardwired to do certain things, to create certain signals based on certain inputs to send to the brain. That makes sense. Um, so do you think or foresee that in the next couple of years, there will be a, almost like an arms race for making your senses that you already have um, improved to almost super sensing, uh, better than 2020 vision, better than, you know, better hearing, better, uh, you know, all of these things that we're trying to augment for people who have lost these functions. I would assume that once we figure out how to bring them back, we could also figure out how to optimize them past what our biological design was. Um, I'm curious if you, you share that kind of, uh, standpoint or you think, um, that, that we're going in a different direction? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like that there's going, there certainly will be a push to try to augment beyond what we normally, what we're, we're capable of. And I think that it will be a difficult push because of um, the limitations that we inherently have. And I think that some cases um, you can push, but you, and you, you might be able to push past the boundary of what you can do, but you're not going to be able to necessarily stay there. So I think there's some aspects of things where um, because eventually we're, we're dealing with the brain and how the brain interprets things, how much we can push the sensory apparatus to go beyond what our brain is capable of is, is going to be a, is, is it going to be tricky? So that's pretty profound. Uh, th that sounds like a, a philosophy lesson as well yes, uh, to be learned. <laughs> um so on, while we're on this topic of of basically where we could push, I think one of the concerns that comes up is who gets to push and who gets to get these kinds of uh, improvements to the quality of life and have restored function if they have a dysfunction or a loss of function. Um, I think if, again, if history repeats itself, 
these kinds of uh, leaps of technology are reserved only to those who can afford them. And I'm wondering if um, these are things that will likely be covered by the insurance, if this is something that will end up pushing us towards a, a further, um, a more intensified health disparity gap uh, or health gap um, or disparity, and basically what those implications are in that regard for socioeconomic uh, factors of health. Right. I think, um, I mean, that's, a, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a critical question and I, um, I, I wish I had a, I wish I had a magic wand, which I don't, um, and I, to be able to fix it. But certainly, any type of wearable device, um, most of the wearables that we have, they generally are expensive. So that clearly means that you have to have the money to be able to take advantage of the technology that's there. You know, as costs come down, things improve. So and just you know, as more people adopt, then they be, the prices come down, and more people get are able to get them. So there, ho- we can hope that that happens. Will it happen that everybody will see the benefit equally of the this technology? I would say that we've we've seen already that you know from other things, not not wearables, but other examples that it's not. It doesn't seem to be the case, which is unfortunate. But I think our, what we have to do is we have to keep trying to make it so that uh, keep trying to push things to to make sure that if this technology really is something that's going to change how healthcare is delivered long term, if wearables are going to have the big impact on people's health, not just uh, wellness, but also their health, that it can be taken advantage of by everybody and not just some people. And I think that's, you know, that's something that we have to continue to work toward. So I wanted to ask, so, is there any way that people can support the creation of these wearables? Is there a way that uh, someone like me can help support research or can I push my insurance company to start offering wearables as part of uh, health prevention? So from the policy, I would say I'm not a policy expert, and I think the insurance aspect is more policy. But in terms of the kind of, uh, you know, Kickstarter approach, um, there's definitely there are places that are crowdsourcing different types of technology um, in this space where, you know, they're looking for funds to be able to take it to the next level in various ways. So definitely the crowdsourcing is an aspect of things Um, in terms of the policy. I think it's issues um, that's, you know, stay active and voting matters. We'll, we'll say that, put it that way. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If there's just to wrap up really quickly, um, what would you say would be like the really top, really important messages to take away from listening to the show? Wearable technology has a lot of potential. We're just tapping into it. Um, I think we've seen a lot of in terms of the health. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on with um, health and wearables and athletes. We really didn't discuss, but there's a lot more there. Um, just everyday use of people with with the technology. I think um, that's just growing. I think the really where you know where the inroads are going to occur more so in the future is directly related to healthcare um, and um, you know telehealth, health medicine, and um, and just, uh, you know, how do we collect this data and use it to make sure people are actually um, staying healthy? And then I think on top of that is going to be, you know, the people who are most engaged to make sure that this technology, if it becomes more prevalent in, in, in providing um, better health care for people, that it's available for everybody to have and not just some people to have. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure. Thanks again, Dr. Titus, for joining us. Thank you, Olive, for making a surprise appearance, uh, cheering us all up. And, of course, to the lovely family and team here at Health in Harlem. Thank you, uh, Zachary, Anastasia, and Reed for joining us. Uh, Dr. Selby couldn't make it tonight because he was on call and he got called in. Um, and uh, but, but regardless, we thank you so much for uh, joining us. And as always, this show is me- is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourselves. And thank you for tuning in to Health in Harlem podcast and radio show on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem.